Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Future of Jewish Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Hoffman. On this episode, I am joined by Rachel Gildener. She is the CEO of Gather DC, an organization in Washington, DC, that helps young Jewish adults find connection to community and to a compelling Jewish life. Formerly of Hillel International, she brings more than a decade of experience developing new ways to use the power of relationships to develop deeper connections to one another and to the Jewish community. Enjoy my conversation with Rachel Gildener. Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time with me. It's uh, We actually don't know each other. This is the first time we're talking for, for the listeners to have full disclosure. Um, but you're doing some great work in the Jewish world. And I read an article that you wrote in the Jerusalem Post re- uh, recently, which uh, really struck a chord with me. And I said, I have to have Rachel on my podcast. So I reached out and we actually, uh, unlike most of the interactions that I have in the Jewish world, which are long and drawn out and uh, sometimes don't lead anywhere, we we really turn this around um, pretty fast. So call like a vote to both of us. Um, <laughs> Why don't we start with you telling us about who you are, your background, and ultimately how you got to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. This is a pleasure. And um, it is on brand at Gather. We like to keep things lean and agile. So the fact that we were able to do this quickly actually is very uh, uh, spot on. Um, so I was born in Philadelphia. Um, I grew up in South Jersey, right outside spent some time at school in New York, um, and I've been in the Washington, D.C. area now for about 15 years, which is pretty wild. Um, And in all of that time um, growing up and kind of my journey to the Jewish professional world, um, I've always had a foot both inside and outside of the Jewish institutional world. Um, I grew up in Philadelphia, connected to a synagogue, but really not entrenched in institutional Judaism. Um, It wasn't until I went to Jewish summer camp as a uh, elementary school child, a little older, that kind of Judaism came alive for me um, in a really important way. Um, And then I did an undergraduate program with the Jewish Theological Seminary in Columbia University called List College. And that's where I first really dove into the academics of Judaism, felt like I was filling a lot of gaps that I didn't have growing up. Um, but it was also when I kind of most quickly saw the insularity of Judaism um, and how there are so many people who consider themselves um, Jews, are proud to be Jewish, have robust Jewish lives, but it is very much outside of kind of the institutional um, definitions of what Judaism is and that we were missing all of these people. So um, the fact that I did a program that was both at Columbia, I was in sorority, I did dance marathon, I had this whole kind of a secular vibrant life. Um, and I was deeply rooted in JTS and all of the Jewish culture and Jewish learning. Um, I was an RA resident advisor. And so my conversations learning about the people who went to this program, like why they chose this crazy program. And, you know, it wasn't because they all wanted to be rabbis and it wasn't because they all kept kosher. Um, it was because Judaism added a unique value to their lives. And, um, that wasn't defined by anyone else that was defined by how they saw it. And so really, I think, um, it was my college experience that helped me realize the work I wanted to do was, Um, making sure there was space for the narratives of people who have felt outside of Jewish institutional life. 
um, but working with institutions to help them change as well. And so I worked at Hill International for seven years, uh, working on projects that would help engage students on campus who will never walk into the Hillel building, but similarly like felt excited about Judaism, um, but would never come to a program. How do we reach them where they are? And that's really where I was introduced to this concept of relational engagement. How do we reach people where they are based on their needs, learning about them, leading with curiosity, not with an agenda, and helping connect them to Jewish life on their terms in ways that were relevant to them. And so I did that at Hill International for seven years. I worked with amazing teachers and colleagues. I learned a lot. And then in 2014, I had the opportunity um, to build out a relational platform for young adults in Washington, DC. Um, at the time it was called Gather the Jews. Um, that was an awesome name. It was created by community members who founded this idea. Um, and what we realized is as we professionalized, the name wasn't working anymore. Um, and so we went from Gather the Jews to Gather DC. Um, and over the past seven years that I've been at Gather DC, uh, we've actually just received national funding to launch uh, our national expansion. So it's really, it's been a wild ride. Um, I've realized that I love building new things um, and meeting needs that exist. And the theme of me just like loving to connect with people and hear their stories and, um, you know, meet people where they are, like that's a very aligned part of who I am as a person and what I do professionally. Um, and I live in Washington DC with my three children and my husband uh, who's a federal employee. And um, yeah, that's, that's a little about me. Wow, that is really inspiring. I, I'm getting a teary eyed. I have to be honest. It's actually, as you know, Yom HaZikaron uh, Memorial Day here in Israel. So that has a little bit of an effect on me too. But uh, the tears that you're generating for me are really positive and uplifting and inspiring tears. I am really, um, I'm at a loss of words. I'm sorry. I, uh, I, I usually am <laughs> full of words, but uh, I'm, I'm really excited to, to unpack what you just said. I want to start with your time at Hillel because um, you have extensive uh, experience working there in a variety of positions from what I could tell and you know I've personally been quite critical of what we can call the Jewish establishment which I would definitely include Hillel in that um, on a macro level meaning mm -hmm. there are tons of great initiatives and people and uh, programs and donors and foundations that are doing micro uh, initiatives, but on a macro level, like when we look at the entire organized Jewish world, which is ultimately a, on a global level, I also include Israel in that, which we know in, the, in America, sometimes it's an American Jewish focus. But when I look global, I feel that there's been some, not just big missteps, but ultimately unrealized potential. And so I'm curious to hear from you based on your time at Hillel, and you don't have to go into any specifics or you can share what you're comfortable sharing. Like there's a, to me, there's a, there's a clear reason why you left Hillel to start Gather DC. Now, I, I guess if I'm reading between the lines and please correct me if I'm wrong, it was two things. One, it was, here's a great opportunity to build Gather DC, which you mentioned the $1.5 million that you're now going uh, national. I'm guessing that there was also maybe some sort of unfulfillment or some sort of frustration that you were experiencing at, at Hillel. And I'm, I'm just curious if you could sort of um, 
allude to to if I if, if what I'm saying is true at all, and if it is, you know, maybe some context and some depth. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's there there's probably some accuracy there on both counts. Um, what I would say, and part of what brought me to Hillel in the first place, was actually a real respect for the fact that a legacy institution, an organization that has been on campuses for, I believe at the time it was maybe 80 years, right? It, it had, it, it was not a new startup, but that what they were willing to do, the office that I was working in was called the Office of Innovation and Implementation. And the whole point of it was to um, be entrepreneur, entrepreneurial, right? To start something new, to re-examine a new way of doing things within the operations of a large bulky, heavy um, organization. And so I found that incredibly exciting. I found it innovative and forward-looking. And what it required was um, Hillel as an organization to hold a mirror up to itself and say, how can we do different and how can we do better? And so for me, I have and continue to have a lot of respect for the movement um, that was able to really build something new within an existing structure. And then, yeah, I think seven years later, I had seen what this relational work could do within a movement. And I personally was excited to see, could we create a startup around this? So I don't know that it was frustration, but I think there was some eagerness to say, you know, I, I see how much work and how much time it takes to change systems across this Hillel movement and help people think about building more relational community and less transactional, we could probably do this, like take the essence of this and create a startup um, culture and do it quickly and do it on the ground and do it in a lean and agile um, learning way. And to have the chance to apply that to a new demographic of post-college was very exciting to me. So when I left Hillel, I don't know that I was feeling frustrated. I was feeling ready to take all the tools that I had gained, the relationships I had built, um, the training that I had done, and apply it um, in a different context. So again, I, you know. But, but um, let me ask you a question about that. Yeah, yeah. So you're working at Hillel, you're, you're clearly deeply entrenched there, both for years, from, from a year standpoint, and from experience and connections and so forth. Why not just do Gather DC within the confines of Hillel? Yeah, so, okay, so now you're, you're getting to the, the good stuff, Josh. So, <laughs> look, you know, I started in the beginning by saying it is really important for us um, as Gather, but also me as Rachel, to have a foot within and outside of the institutional world. Now, Gather has always been funded by um, Jewish institutions and Jewish philanthropists who fund institutions. And so we never were kind of rogue or, you know, um, kind of off the radar, but we wanted to push the envelope a little bit. And we wanted to, you know, when we say that we want to meet young adults where they are, we wanted to be able to do that um, without the idea of, we have the whole brand of a movement behind us because that could weigh us down, right? We wanted to be working in service of the people that we are trying to serve first and foremost. And I'll give you an example of how that came to be and how that stirred the pot a little bit. Um, so the way that Gather does our work is we listen. We're just always, always listening. Who are we meeting and what are we hearing? Um, and one of the early findings, which we knew to be true, um, but now we, we really knew it uh, in our hearts, was that um, 
the high holidays are the holiest days of the year on the Jewish calendar. And that the way that you have to observe them is to go to a synagogue or a religious service. And so what Gather does is we help people find tickets for all of the incredible services that are being offered. But what we also realized is that some people just needed a lower barrier way to participate in the day. And so we piloted what we called our alternative Yom Kippur experience, um, and we held it in a beer garden. Now, we never said that beer was not going to be served, but we didn't say that it was or wasn't. We just said Gather DC is hosting this experience and a beer garden for two hours the morning of Yom Kippur. Um, we were oversubscribed right away. Um, it was led by a rabbi and people were writing their own eulogies. I mean, it was one of the most powerful Yom Kippur experiences that I have ever had. Um, but we could, we could not have done that. We could not have even thought to do that if we were connected to a movement or a platform for whom that would challenge other ways of thinking about Yom Kippur. So again, it was, you know, how can we both support and celebrate the fact that there are so many incredible Yom Kippur offerings happening in our community and also create something that's like a little provocative and a little um, pushing the envelope. And so that's a very long way of saying, Josh, to your question, we couldn't do that with a brand and a movement name that everyone knew and would get attention in a bad way. We really wanted to be, be able to forge our own path. Yeah, that makes sense. So I guess what I'm hearing is, listen, Hillel is great, or forget Hillel, their code name for big Jewish institutional organizations are great for A, B, and C, but maybe not for D, E, and F. And my understanding with Gather DC is, is it's basically, it's, it's trying to play in both A, B, and C, and D, E, and F, but still more toward leaning toward the D, E, and F, which makes perfect sense. I'm curious, though, because I had a organizational executives tell me recently that she feels that young people who I would consider you to be young, uh, I don't know how old you are, but uh, from from the looks of it, you're not uh, terrible. The older old. range of young. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so she told me that, you know, young people like yourself, like myself as well, go into these big Jewish organizations. They have tons of energy and passion and, and excitement surrounding the Jewish world. And they ultimately end up leaving and starting their own thing because they don't, there's not, there's not a good match between that sort of youthful exuberance and the, I don't know if you want to call it age old or traditional or conventional way of doing things, which these bigger organizations operate under. Um, I find that to be true on a, in a general sense, you're, you're, for the people that can't see that you're nodding your I'm head. Nodding yes. vigorously. Yeah. Um, I, I'm curious though, um, you know, one of the things that I would add to that observation that this, that this woman made to me is that, um, millennials, which both you and I are, um, kind of want to do our own thing. I mean, we see that with the whole great resignation now and, uh, Uber and food delivery services. I mean, the sort of controlling our own time and destiny, so to speak. So I'm wondering, like, to me, that's also a component here, right? It's not just that the big organizations can't support the types of things we may or want to be doing. Um, I'm wondering out loud with you, um, 
because the other side of that coin is like, okay, great. You have these young, uh, super passionate and excited individuals who want to, you know, do their part to advance the Jewish world. But then we have a lot of organizations now because back in the day, I mean, in 2022, to start an organization for profit or nonprofit is, I mean, you could get it done in a week because um, you could find a physical sponsor if you're a nonprofit. If you're a for-profit, it's like 10 times easier. I can tell you from experience having to <laughs> for-profits in, in the Jewish world. Um, and so I guess what I'm asking you is like the downside to, to going out on your own um, yeah. is that we end up creating a lot of, excuse the word, but redundant organizations. And I don't say redundant in that it's necessarily the same specific mission or product or service or experiences, rather the same target audiences. And so I'm wondering, you know, as somebody who went through that transition from big organization to sort of small upstart, not yeah, startup, nonprofit, um, how do you look at, you know, I'll just throw out a name, like a one table, which basically is going after the same or a birthright which is basically going after the same audience as you. And there's, those are two examples. I mean, there's probably dozens, if not hundreds. How do you look at, at, at those other organizations? What are you doing with them, if anything? And how do we, as a collective Jewish world, um, reduce those redundancies to elevate the impact that I think we all wanna see? Yes. Um, what you are pointing out, Josh, is a really, it, it's not a small thing. It's a huge part of, I think, how we think about organizing. And there are a couple um, conceptual frameworks that I want to offer because um, we think about this a lot. So one is this idea of old power and new power models of institutions. And it's not that one is bad and one is good. We need both. But the way Jewish community is currently organized, most institutions run on old power models, meaning power is held by very few at the top. It's not fully distributed, um, right? The way that they talk about it in the book that it's called New Power, um, Tim's and Hyman, I believe are the authors. Um, they talk about in old power structures, um, power is like a currency and in new power structures, it's like a current, like it runs and is accessible to all. And I think about that all the time, right? This generation, as you're saying, we don't have the patience to wait for the power. We know we have power now. We want to use it. We want to spend it. We want to make change. And so, um, so that's like one kind of concept thinking about how old power structures can create and build new power ways. Um, and I think that's what I really loved about Hillel when I started there is that's what they were trying to do. Um, I think another concept, and this um, comes to your point about the other organizations that, you know, One Table and Birthright and Moisha House, I mean, these are amazing organizations, is that we, part of the old power structure is that it's about um, getting as much resource, hoarding resources, right? It, we've, we've been, how can we make our institutions bigger, better, more uh, impactful, more effective? Um, and what we actually need to be doing in a new power structure is focusing on ecosystem and less ecosystem, meaning 
we need to know this is not all about our institution, especially millennials, young adults, Gen Z. They are not looking for one place to get all their Jewish needs. Barriers are lower. People are going in between and finding things. Um, you know, it, it, the, it, the barriers are porous. It's just, it's not the same principles. And so for us to know and, and to truly believe and to work in this way, right, which is sometimes hard because there are, you know, still resources, but really, really to think of this as a mindset of abundance and not scarcity. What is, what, if one table can be more successful, if Moisha House can be more successful, if new startups that we don't even know, if all of us are reaching young adults and really listening to what their needs are, all boats are gonna rise, right? We're gonna better understand this population. Each organization is going to need to adapt as things change. And I think to me, it is much more exciting to have a living ecosystem of different organizations than to have static institutions who are just there because they've always been there. And so what you're describing to me, I see that as such an opportunity. I feel very grateful for the partnerships and the relationships that I have with those other organizations you mentioned, right? Like none of us are trying to put ourselves or anyone else out of business. Like we're trying to really, you know, we have a similar vision for how vibrant Jewish life can be for this population. And we all want to um, support that. So, right. But like, I'm going to push back on that because Bob Aronson, who's on the uh, previous episode of the future of Jewish podcast, I don't know if you know, Bob, uh, but he was the uh, birthright foundation president and he was uh, worked for decades in the federation system. So, so he basically, you know, it's, it's, it's good and well, like when times are, are good, so to speak for each of these uh similar organizations like yours and and some of the other ones uh to you know first of all we should all be collaborating more i think we we can all agree on that but but also just to say yeah like i hope everyone succeeds like that's easy to say but like when push comes to shove this was a quote from bob he said you know when another organization gets like you raised a million and a half dollars recently and he basically said every organization who's reading that says why didn't we get that million and a half dollars and what we, what, 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 look what we could do if we had that million and a half dollars. And so, oh. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's, and that's, you know, I think that's where I fundamentally disagree with the nonprofit approach. Uh, because in, in, uh, in capitalism, for lack of a better word, you can always grow the pie, which means that whether the existing competitor, so to speak, or both existing and new competitors can still basically hold their, their remaining portion, if not grow it, because the pie is certainly not always growing, but growing exponentially and consistently. In the nonprofit world, the pie stays roughly the same, more or less. Uh, Bob Aronson, by the way, said on the podcast that actually the the pie is is, is uh, becoming smaller in the overall Jewish world, um, mm -hmm. meaning people that are used to give more to the Jewish causes are not giving to other causes. Um, so I'm just wondering, like, I guess I'll just say, what do you say to all that? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I have lots of thoughts on philanthropy in general. I mean, I have been on the other side of that, being the person who's like, why are they giving all that money, you know, and just kind of checking yourself and saying like, that's great for them. Ours is, you know, like 
have faith. Um, so I think everything you're describing is is very true. You know, look, I, so I, I can't answer all of those huge questions. Um, what I can say is that the way that Gather wants to think about our work is we want to be in the business of changing systems. So if Gather in the marketplace of philanthropy, funding, resources, right? If at the end of the day, Gather is not gonna be an entity in 50 years, 30 years, um, we want to know that we have changed the culture of Jewish life and something else exists now, right? I think, again, I, I sometimes we're just so beholden to the entities that we run. Um, and I don't, I don't see this in anyone you're describing. I just think if we, again, this is called, right, Jewish futures, if we're thinking about the future and, and really forward thinking, I don't want gather to exist for the sake of gather existing, right? We have a mission in the world. And if our, if we can help right now while we're getting this expansion money, right? While we have a pot to work from, if we can use that time to change the culture of Jewish life for young adults, to help institutions create more relational, more lean infrastructure to meet the needs of this new generation, and then we're not needed in 30 years, like, great, you know, more for everyone else. I think it's really thinking that way is hard. And no one, again, like I said, wants to go out of business or say that theirs is the thing that can sacrifice. But I just think if we are genuine about an ecosystem approach and we look at all the pieces in a system, I just, I don't know, this, maybe this is like woo woo or hippy dippy, but like, I just believe that the forces that need to come together will come together. And so if, you know, right, like right now, One Table and Moisha House are incredible assets. We send people to them. We get people who have graduated from those who are looking for their next fit. I mean, it all works together. And if at some point one of those takes precedent, I, I think we just have to have faith again in like the marketplace. Um, the, the belief in our mission and our work. And that's all we can do, right? Like if we're trying to perpetuate something that's not working, like maybe it should stop. And maybe if we had done that, you know, a couple of decades ago, we wouldn't be in the position that we're in now. So speaking of uh, changing systems, you, you wrote a beautiful article that the headline is stop trying to get Jews to date each other and start focusing on nurturing friendships. So we know that this, you know, you talk about it in your article, there's this huge... <laughs> emphasis in the Jewish world on Jewish dating and Jewish marriage and Jewish families. And as you mentioned, you're a mother of three. So you know how important these programs are. Actually, just reading, reading from your article as, mm-hmm. as I intro into this, into this next question. Um, huge topic, Jewish romance, we can call it Jewish love, Jewish family. Um, so on one hand, I say, okay, well, I would argue that the two most successful Jewish initiatives in the last 25 years are JDate and JSwipe, both Jewish dating platforms. And by the way, don't quote me on that. I would say maybe they're in the top five, so there might be some other ones, um, but they're definitely up there. But what you say in your article, which I actually kind of agree with, is that that's not necessarily necessarily the best way to cultivate Jewish life, Jewish pride, 
maybe the relationship between uh, Jews outside of Israel and Jews in Israel. So tell us more about, you know, why you wrote that article and your general thoughts about it. It's fascinating. Yeah. So the first thing I will say in response to that, Josh, is um, I think that Jewish family and Jewish romantic partnership is also really important. So again, like for me and my family, and we work closely with PJ library that I'm a huge fan of, like, this is all really important work. And I'm not saying that any of it should stop or not continue. I um, love the caveat that we all yeah. have to, we have yeah. to, we're not, I don't want to piss anyone off. Right. So let me just, you know, and no, I, just I will say I, I'm getting more comfortable pissing people off, but I want to do it for the right reasons and in the right way. And at the right time, like, this is not one of those things, truly, like all of these initiatives are vital. Um, and like I mentioned, you know, gather is always listening. We're really listening on the ground to our people and what we are seeing, we've been doing this work for seven years now, what we are seeing is that all of the, the J-date and the J-swipe and the matchmaking and the date auctions and all of those things, sometimes they work. And we've seen so many. I mean, I think there's been books written about the trends of online dating and how that's leading to more couples. And I mean, it, it's incredible. And I also know a lot of people that are like pretty freaking jaded by the experience of dating and particularly trying to date Jews in a small community where everyone knows each, right? Like it's not all great. And, and another component is I think we've seen through the pandemic, right? Like if you are in a romantic relationship that's sustained through COVID-19, that's great. Um, I know a lot that didn't, by the way, but really it was even people in relationships, even as a mom and a, a spouse, like it was my friends. I needed my friends to like, keep me sane, to give me purpose and meaning those connections that we don't always think about cultivating and making space for. Those were the ones that I really leaned on most heavily. I missed my girlfriends. I missed our deep conversations. I missed the run-ins and it just was kind of a reminder of you know, fewer people are getting married, fewer people are having children. Um, even people who are need these secondary tertiary relationships to be fostered and to feel holy. And I want to give you a very specific example of what we hear a lot, which personally was a real impetus for writing this article is when single people show up to Jewish experiences, usually at institutions, they don't know what to do with them. They don't fit in a couple's box and they don't fit in a family box and they don't fit in a young 22 year old box. There's really no clear pathway for their engagement. And I have worked with a lot of people for whom that feels horrible. It feels like they are not whole individuals as they are. It means that the relationships that they do have in their lives don't matter enough to be like sanctified or welcomed. Um, you know, it, it's really um, pushing away a lot of individuals who feel like they have very rich and fulfilled lives, but because they're not coupled or because they will never have children, um, they don't see a path for themselves in Jewish life. And that was the point, I think, as gathers trying to create more relational communities that doesn't just mean until people get married. It means we need to be focused on caring about people when they show up outside of romantically, caring, nurturing, um, being curious about people's lives and not making assumptions about marriage and kids. Um, and that's really what kind of sparked that article. 
Fascinating. So I think one of the things that Bertha gets right, and, and I think this speaks to what you're talking about, is that they bring the Israeli students and the soldiers uh, onto the trips. And in many ways, that creates uh, interpersonal friendships, sometimes relationships between the Jewish non-Israeli folks that come on birthright from, from across the world and the Israelis that join those groups while they're here in Israel. And, you know, I think that that's a very important part of, um, in that case, creating a relationship between Jews around the world and Israel, because, you know, you can't have a relationship with a country, so to speak. That's I mean, maybe I guess if you live here, then you can, but like, it's really interpersonal, always trumps, like, amorphous or sort Absolutely. of non non-human relationships so to speak um and i want to say i know we're talking about but i also want to say that's the same for institutions right like when people say we want people to have a relationship with our organization like you're actually talking about people right the organizations are people so i just want to so here's what's fascinating about that yeah so i, I used to work in social media marketing i had a client service marketing business for several years. And there was a statistic that came out circa 2012 that said CEOs of companies that tweet and that have a Twitter account and, and tweet, um, consumers are 50% more likely to buy from their brands. Now, then when I got into the Jewish world recently, um, I realized no one even knows who the hell the CEOs are of these quote unquote big Jewish brands. Yep. And so like you talk about a relationship with an institution, of course you can have a relationship with people that work all up and down the institution, but like the CEO, especially in today's day and age with social media and uh, just, just the way of the world. I mean, the fact that like, you know, like I called my friend, Michael, I wrote about this and I called my friend, Michael, and I was like, he's an engaged Jew as, as you and I would call him. Um, and I was like, so Michael, who's the CEO of Facebook? And he goes, Zuckerberg. And I, what, what about Amazon, uh, Bezos, um, Tesla, Elon Musk? Okay. Who's the CEO of Birthright? Uh, I don't know. Who's the CEO of Hillel? Uh, not sure. Uh, who's the CEO of Jewish national fund? Like that to me says it all right there. Um, how can organizations in your mind do a better job of building these relational dynamics? Oh, okay. So, so I'll just, here's my little plug. So this is actually the work that Gather is trying to help organizations do, right? We believe in what we call, this is our like hippy dippy stuff again, what we call a fractal model, meaning we are trying to train and uh, support people doing relational work with the people they serve. But to do that actually, it needs to be happening at every level of your organization. So how are you applying relational practices between you and your staff? How are you applying relational practices with your board? How is a relational methodology informing the culture of your organization? Because only if you're living it, can you actually be doing it? And that's really our philosophy. So we're thinking about this a lot. How do you help organizations make relational changes? Now, one of the things, and I don't know if it's a pushback or just to name, right, is that at institutions of old power structures, the CEO is seen as the person with like the power, right? Because they're at, you know, the quote top. But I can imagine organizations where it doesn't matter who the CEO is 
because everyone in that organization is empowered and has authority and charisma and reputation that it actually matters less. And I would say, I think that's a good thing. I think what you're referencing are the big brands, the older power structures where, right? Like the CEO, and I love, I love these people and I'm a CEO myself. The CEO is not the one who's like making the work happen. They're just not right. Like they oversee it. We have really big, you know, jobs, but it's our teams. It's the people that we have doing the work on the ground who are making the change, who are doing the work. And it's like, how can we elevate that and uplift that and help them be the face of the organization um, in a way that is both like better for the work we're trying to do and is also creating a culture of like being in relationship doesn't have to mean with the CEO. Um, so, so I guess on one hand, I'm kind of like questioning the, the premise of that. Like, I don't actually want to be in relationship with Elon Musk, you know, like I know him for like maybe good and bad reasons. Um, but I think this question of organizations are people and how can organizations be in relationship with their own people and also be striving to build relationships outside of their organization that advance the work, not necessarily like the name of the CEO, I guess would be my question back. Yeah, that's a good point. I um, I want to go back to the relational Judaism aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've, I've said recently getting into the, the realm of being a professional Jew that uh, the most effective way to elevate um i'll use a i'm wearing a we work shirt people can't see it but i'll use a we work saying yeah. <laughs> uh the most effective way to elevate the world's consciousness around judaism that's the caveat is to create better relationships between the jewish world and our non-jewish family friends and communities that will have in my estimation the single biggest and most unprecedented effect on anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. It will uh, surely have an effect on things that I'm not interested in having an effect on, but things like conversion uh, and um, uh, being in the business of Judaism, meaning you have more customers now, uh, whether you're a for-profit or a non-profit mm-hmm. and so forth. I'm wondering how how could we possibly apply your concept of relational Judaism uh, in in the sense of making better, perhaps even more scalable relationships between the Jewish world and the non-Jewish world? And are you guys doing any of this work right now? Yeah, so um, we talk about this a lot right now, the place where we have influence, traction, um, uh, where we're seeing the most, um, kind of forward movement is within the Jewish community, because that is our backyard, right? It's where we work. It's our networks. What I do believe and what I personally keep an eye on is this conversation is in like the zeitgeist of our world. There are foundations and organizations that are talking about the need for connection and belonging and being in relationship and how to have dialogue. And to me, that is so based in a relational approach, right? It's about how do we meet people, listen to people, um, deepen relationship with people, uh, right? Not just kind of 
consider success when we show up at a dialogue program, but actually how can we be in dialogue with people even when it is hard? Um, to me, it is very connected. And I think, right, for Gather right now, um, our corner of the world is the Jewish community. Do we think that a relational approach, and that's why I, I will just say, when you say relational Judaism, that's a term that was coined by Rabbi Ron Wolfson in his book that he wrote. But the term that we use is relational engagement. And we do that because it is beyond Judaism, right? It, it, this is about a way of being in the world. It's about a lens of seeing community, um, that it's not like community building, it's actually happening on a relational level. And so we do think that there are lots of implications for um, dialogue across difference. I think there's a lot of implications for the DIJ work that we're all trying to do. Um, and we're not there yet, but absolutely that's where this work can be and should be and needs to be beyond just a Jewish thing. This is about how we can all be in deeper relationship um, to create change. So I want to push back on that a little bit. Yeah. Um, so, so I guess if I were to say to you, well, in my estimation, if you're only focused on the Jews, then you'll still probably get the same amount of people that, you know, that pie is not really growing. In fact, you could argue it's getting smaller. But then, like, the Jews are part of the bigger world. And if we're not creating, if we're not creating those, uh, those bridges between, um, between Jews and non-Jews, so to speak, like, then, then are we really doing the right work? And you might push back and say, well, bandwidth. I don't have all the bandwidth. And so then I would push back and go back to our original conversation and say, well, if you and Moisha House and Birthright and One Table all came together and literally pulled all your resources, one plus one equals three, if not four, five, six, 10, 20. So I'm just wondering, again, playing devil's advocate and not poo-pooing the work that you're doing today by, all, by any means, because it is fantastic. But like, there also seems to be like a big misfire when we talk about that Jewish to non-Jewish relationship. Absolutely. So again, I think I'm a hammer and what you are suggesting is a nail. So to me, the best way to do that is actually not necessarily through the organizational like top down. It's actually how, how can I, Rachel, be in relationship with people who are doing this in the secular world, right? Like that's how everything amazing happens. It's that I need to be building a relationship with the people doing belonging you know, in the Muslim world and my staff needs to be in relationship with, um, right? Like it's actually, this is the fractal, right? If we believe in relational work, the way change is going to happen is by us being in relationship with different people. Um, so I think that is something we strive for. It is a bandwidth question, but I think we're all trying to do it in our own way. And I actually like, this is a helpful push that we could be doing it more intentionally. Um, and then there was one other, um, part of that that you raised that I wanted to um, adjust that now I'm, I'm forgetting what it was, but basically you're not wrong. And um, all of these relationships take time. And so I think it's also understanding like the real work of relationships is not a one-to-one, -one. it's not gonna happen overnight. Um, and so just naming that as like, sometimes this work takes time to see the fruits. And I think, you know, to counter what I said, uh, not that I'm trying to be right or wrong or trying to make you look good or bad, 
uh, that actually, you know, this idea of the current of really creating this ecosystem that you called it, um, where, you know, the everyday Jew, so to speak, maybe not people that work in your organization or some of the other, or some of the other organizations that I mentioned, they can go out and be those, those uh, purveyors of interpersonal relationships with, That's you know, right. the, all these people have their own friends that are That's right. probably many of which are not Jewish. They interact in non-Jewish right. circles, so to speak. So I think that's an interesting point as well. I want to ask you, going back to the Jewish world, about the relationship that we have with each other. So we know that denominations are the law of the land in the Jewish world. We have the Reform, and we have the Conservative, and the Modern Orthodox, and the Orthodox. We have the American Jew. We have the Israeli Jew. We have the Argentinian Jew. Big issues, right? I see you're nodding your head. Um, to me, it's to me, it's it's really a a huge um, disappointment and just something that I find very bizarre. Because, like, <laughs> if we want the world to like us, we should probably like each other. Yeah, it doesn't mean we have, if, you know, yes. it doesn't mean that we have to agree with each other all the time that we have to necessarily change our lives for other people or live different ways according to how other people live but like that like my whole thing is very clear if you want to kill anti-semitism kill jew on jew hate or jew on jew uh attacks or uh condescending you know dialogue uh looking down on the other uh yeah. gossip uh questioning, etc. Um, so I guess what I'm asking you now is, you know, how, how in your estimation can we create a Jewish world where, whether you're Orthodox or totally secular, whether you are Israeli or American or Australian or Brazilian, whether you are a devout believer whether you don't believe at all, whether you are belong to a synagogue, you don't belong to a synagogue, et cetera, et cetera. How can we create what I would just call Jewish unity on a global, true, a truly global level based on, you know, relational engagement and relational Judaism? Yeah. So, so two points to this one in this question reminded me of the other um, thing I wanted to respond to, which was this idea that the Jewish pie is getting smaller, that there's actually fewer Jews. I think what I have seen is that actually there are so many Jews that we are not reaching. There are so many people and we are not reaching them, I think in part because of what you are describing, which is they have not checked the boxes of what we consider like inside Judaism. And so we're like, where are they? How do we find them? You know what? They're humans, right? They're not coming into the doors of synagogue, but they're coming into the doors of all of the other universal places, CrossFit and Soul Cycle and, um, you know, uh, Starbucks. <laughs> Starbucks and um, Burning Man and, right? Like, like, and, and for us, why, why are the, why is it so hard to imagine that like Jews that find meaning in other places aren't Jews that we, are able to, like, it just, it's very bizarre to me. So that is all to say, first, I also wanna 
I think that the work that Hartman, the Hartman Institute is doing around conversations about pluralism and unity that are nuanced and academic, like they're doing brilliant work. And so I just, I have no connection to them other than like they are really thinking about this at a global level. What does pluralism and unity mean when we, we hate other Jews sometimes? Like, what do you do with that? So I just, I want to name that. That's not something that I can answer, but what I do think, and again, this might sound naive, but at the end of the day, right, like this is like my last point on this podcast, we just need to know each other. We need to be able to hear one another and see each other as humans. And sometimes these um, categories of, you know, I'm a conservative Jew, I'm a renewal Jew, I'm a relational Jew, sometimes those barriers really prevent us from knowing one another as humans and as people and as parents or spouses or sisters or you know people who care about things in the world and until we can strip that down I agree in the Jewish world um it doesn't give me a lot of hope for what's beyond that but, but that's but how, how so how can we in your estimation I mean obviously I don't expect you to cure all of our ills but <laughs> I don't know just some initial thought starters that maybe people can take away and say you know what I could do a better job of this or I could you know, try to do more of that? Um, I think the biggest thing, and this is a whole training that we do around relational work, you have to start with curiosity. You cannot come in with assumptions about who someone is, what they care about, what is right or wrong, um, right? Like if they have a tattoo, they're this type of Jew, like you just have to lean into the curiosity and you have to ask questions and you have to care. And if we can do those things with one another, there's like a lot more hope <laughs> for what is possible. Um, but that's a huge part of the relational work is curiosity and care. I think that's a great place to leave it. Rachel, you're a rock star. You really are. I love thank the work you're for doing. This opportunity, Josh. This was really fun. Keep up the phenomenal work and thank you for your time. Thank you.